0: NHK World Radio Japan, and France 24. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. An interview with Louisa Neubauer, a leader in the German Fridays for Future movement. She is in Egypt at the UN Climate Change Conference COP27 and discusses what she sees as the needs and goals of the summit leaders of the global north are undermining their own promises, and if she thinks that confrontational actions aid or set back the movement. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle.
1: As the UN climate summit in Egypt nears its end, world leaders have been making major pledges on climate change and action. At Sharm el-Sheikh, Brazil's president-elect Luisa Nasio-Lula da Silva, promised to crack down on deforestation in the Amazon. Debate still remains over compensation for poorer countries for the damaging effects they suffer from climate change. Delegates at the conference are yet to agree on a final deal. Well, climate activist Louisa Neubauer from Fridays for Future Germany joins us now from the summit. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock is still at the summit. What do you hope she achieves?
2: Well, what we need at the summit more desperately than perhaps ever before is we need for especially the countries of the global north to to show to demonstrate that any of their promises mean anything And as we speak about new pledges being made from all sorts of world leaders, what we're seeing at the same time is that before and during the summit, 40 new gas deals were made um, and we're still counting. So this summit is about to turn into a fossil fuel gas greenwashing show with world leaders saying the one thing and at the same time all over the planet expanding fossil fuel infrastructure.
1: How much of the pledges, how how many of the pledges, or what sort of percentage would you say is greenwashing and uh, will uh, actually uh, result in some sort of action being taken?
2: Well, I'm not saying that all of the pledges made here um, are categorically empty, but what we're seeing is that um, that leaders, especially those of the global north, are undermining their their own promises when saying that they're committing to climate action, to, to mitigation, to loss and damage on the one side, while fueling the crisis that causes all the devastation at the same time. It's not working out, so we need to, to look at you know what's the sum of things that is happening here, and that is, in the worst case, an enormous backlash or the opening up, rather, of a new fossil fuel era, um, with, with leaders from the global north desperately trying to get around and assemble as much fossil fuel as they can possibly get, knowingly that there will be an incredible amount of overproduction happening knowing that they're putting lives and livelihoods everywhere at risk.
1: What's also not working and where promises have been made but not kept uh, is financing poorer countries to cope with the challenges. Uh, do you have recommendations or suggestions on how that could go forward?
2: Well I don't think people um, have an idea of the amount of um, mistrust that is that is around here at COP. People from the most affected area, from the most vulnerable countries, they have no reason anymore to believe any of the finance pledges that are being made that we've heard for so, so, so many years with then all of the leaders, one after the other, backing off of actually delivering to that. And people are tired. They can't wait anymore. They have lost everything already to a large extent. Um, and, you know, anyone coming here wanting to... to to um, excite everyone for yet another pledge, you know, is facing the very dire truth, the very dire reality of so many people around the world who have lost everything because of the emissions of the Global North, because of the emissions that they have never caused in the first place. That is incredibly unjust. And if this conference is supposed to mean anything, this is the moment where the Global North really has to pay up.
1: Louisa, is it counterproductive when people from Uh, your climate movement or other climate activists from around the world start gluing themselves to highways and streets and attacking works of art Uh, does that work against what you're trying to achieve there in Egypt
2: why should that be counterproductive
1: because uh, it We see uh, a public backlash, we see public opinion moving against climate activists when at the moment we have such a huge movement and huge public awareness of what needs to be done for the climate.
2: Well, I don't think that every movement and every activist goal needs to be, to, you know, change a public opinion or to, to create public majorities for climate action, I think some of us needs to just make sure all the time that this crisis is real, that it's there and actually needs to happen now. And, um, you know, that's it's a great teamwork that we're doing all over the planet with some of us creating large movements, bringing millions of people on the street and creating, you know, a public understanding of what's going on in the larger sense. And others are there to, to show how drastic and how radical this crisis really is. Um, and this comes together as a, as a large, you know, mosaic there. And to be fair, I think, you know, leaders now claiming, or politicians now claiming that, you know, the public opinion would be harmed by someone gluing there on the streets. I would argue that the public opinion is being harmed by leaders you know, telling all the fairy tales about the crisis that can apparently wait, about the climate not being the first priority and about you know, climate activists needing to understand that you know, there might be more important things to care about when the one thing we really cannot live without is a stable climate.
1: Louisa Neubauer from Fridays for Future Germany. Thank you very much for being on DW News. Appreciate it.
0: That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. More than 600 delegates to the COP27 are affiliated with the fossil fuel industry, who are pushing for new oil and gas development on the African continent. Europe is looking at replacing Russian oil and gas supplies with rapid development in Africa, claiming the goal is to aid the impoverished people in the region. U.S. occupation forces in Syria with Kurdish allies have reportedly looted another 94 tankers of oil and wheat illegally transporting them to U.S. military bases in Iraq. Iran is assisting Venezuela in repairing its oil refineries and supplying fuel and tankers for exporting its crude oil. Radio Havana, Cuba.
3: More than 600 delegates affiliated with the fossil fuel industry are attending this year's climate talks in Egypt. Campaign group Global Witness has confirmed a number greater than the combined delegations from the 10 most climate impacted countries. The attendance at COP27 marks a 25% increase from last year's summit in Glasgow, Scotland, where the fossil fuel industry already fielded more delegates than any single nation. This year's biggest single delegation was from the oil-producing United Arab Emirates that will host COP28 next year. They sent 1,070 people to the summit compared to just 170 last year. Helen Naima, director of the African Climate Campaign at the United States Non-Profit Cooperate Accountability, told Al Jazeera, The path to averting climate catastrophe isn't through negotiations flooded with industry lobbyists. Enough is enough in treating those most culpable for the crisis as partners or stakeholders in the solution. The climate summit held in the Red Sea resort of Sham El Sheikh from November the 6th to the 18th, dubbed the African COP, has seen nations from the continent argue that they should be allowed to develop fossil fuel resources to help lift their people out of poverty. Echoing comments from other African nations, Namibia's Petroleum Commissioner, Magishino, said, quote, representatives from many oil and gas companies are attending the summit precisely because Africa wants to send a message that we are going to develop all of our energy resources for the benefit of our people. The United Nations Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, however, has issued stark warnings against developing any new fossil fuel infrastructure in order to limit warming to 2 degrees centigrade or 1.5 degrees centigrade and avoid catastrophic effects, including more frequent wildfires, longer periods of drought and devastating floods rich European nations race to gain access to African na- natural gas and its reserves has raised concerns amongst climate activists at COP27 United Nations Climate Change Conference underway in Egypt. Quote, Europe wants to turn Africa into its gas station, said Mohamed Adao, director of the Power Shift Africa think tank at the United Nations Climate Summit in Sham El Sheikh on Tuesday. This is quoted in an AFP report. Adao continued, Quote, We don't have to follow the footsteps of the rich world that actually caused climate change in the first place. The remarks came as wealthy Western countries facing an energy crunch as a result of the ongoing Ukrainian conflict and the cut-off of Russian gas supplies are eyeing natural gas reserves amid charges by climate activists at COP27 that the move is intended to deny green transition to impoverished African countries. European countries have been scrambling for alternative sources of gas after the continent's former top supplier slashed exports in apparent retaliation for US-led Western sanctions over the Russian military operation in in Ukraine that began in February. According to the report, Europe sees great potential in African fossil fuel reserves, including promising oil and gas discoveries in Senegal and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. However, activists, researchers and advocacy groups argue that exporting natural gas may bring short-term profits to some African nations, but will further worsen the climate crisis and leave the poor countries worse off in the long run. According to Thuli Makama, African Programme Director at Oil Change International, quote, history shows us that extraction in African countries has not resulted in development. U.S. occupation forces in Syria and their local Kurdish mercenary allies have reportedly looted another 94 tankers and trucks loaded with the country's oil and wheat illegally transporting them to neighboring Iraq. Citing local sources, Syria's official SANA news agency further unveiled on in a Saturday report that the intruding American military forces transferred out 30 tankers loaded with stolen Syrian crude via the illegal Al-Walid border crossing and 40. Four more tankers of oil from the al Swaidiya fields through the unauthorized Mahmoudiyyeh crossing heading to U.S. military bases across Iraq. According to the report, the occupation troops aided by the so-called Syrian Democratic Forces or SDF of U.S.-backed Kurdish militants also hauled 20 more trucks loaded with wheat out of the country to northern Iraq through the Simalka crossing. Syrian media outlets regularly report on American illegal oil and food smuggling activities with the U.S. occupiers and their local Kurdish allies organizing convoys containing dozens of tankers and trucks at least once a week and sometimes multiple times. Last week, U.S. forces reportedly shipped 43 tankers of Syrian oil looted from the country's Al-Jazeera field into northern Iraq. This is while Damascus has repeatedly condemned Washington's oil and food looting activities in the war-torn Arab nation, which has robbed Syria of access to nearly 90% of its oil resources and much of its arable land. Iran and Venezuela, both petroleum-rich OPEC members, have found solidarity in coordinated geopolitical, economic and military maneuvers against Cher's common enemy, the United States, which has subjected them to a regime of economic sanctions for years. Ties between the nations were close under Venezuela's maverick president, Hugo Chavez, but strengthened further under Nicolas Maduro, who has sought a lifeline from Iran to pull his country's economy back from the brink. While Venezuela enjoys what are believed to be the world's largest petroleum deposits, years of maintenance issues in the face of U.S. sanctions have dramatically hampered its production and refining capabilities. In June of this year, Venezuela and Iraq signed a 20-year cooperation plan, which involves Iranian assistance in repair and maintenance of existing Venezuelan refineries, as well as other technical and engineering expertise. The two nations also signed a deal whereby Iran will deliver four oil tankers to Venezuela through the Iranian company SADRA. Weekly flights between Caracas and Tehran began in July. Iran has sent fleets of fuel-laden tanker ships to alleviate Venezuela's crisis before and also helped to export Venezuela's crude in the face of crippling U.S. sanctions. In 2020, Iran launched a new supermarket, Megasis, in Venezuela. Perched on the eastern edge of Caracas, the 200,000-square-foot megastore sits next to Venezuela's largest slum, Petare, where it stocks a dazzling array of over 2,500 Iranian products. Products, many considered novelties to its new customers
0: those reports were from radio havana cuba cubas website is working well at radio8c.cu though the podcasts are not updated on shortwave cuba may be heard from noon to 1pm at 15140 and from 5pm to 11 at either six thousand sixty sixty or 6165 At their website, you can stream the English version at noon on Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. On to NHK World Radio Japan. At the G20 summit in Bali, Joe Biden had a meeting with Chinese President Xi finding a way to get their relationship back on track. Experts from the International Atomic Energy Agency are inspecting a planned release into the Pacific Ocean of radioactively contaminated water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The head of NATO says that the missile that killed two people in Poland was likely fired by Ukraine, but placed the blame entirely on Russia, NHK Japan. Leaders of the group of 20 nations are kicking off a two-day summit on the
4: Indonesian island of Bali. One of the summit's most highly anticipated meetings came before it officially began. U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping sat down to discuss ways to cool tensions and get their relationship back on track. Concerns over Taiwan were expected to be a key focus of the meeting. U.S.-China ties have deteriorated as Beijing has ratcheted up military pressure on Taiwan. The bilateral relationship became even more strained when U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei in August. Biden was expected to voice U.S. concerns over China's actions on Taiwan and try to grasp the motives for them. He wants to avoid misinterpreting by Washington and Beijing about each other's intentions. She was likely to demand that Biden end his country's involvement with Taiwan. Last month, she told delegates at the National Congress China will never renounce the use of force to, in his words, achieve reunification with self-ruled Taiwan. The leaders were also expected to discuss Ukraine and North Korea. Analysts say the meeting is unlikely to produce concrete results, but could help stabilize ties and prevent a serious conflict from developing. Experts from the International Atomic Energy Agency will inspect a planned release of treated water from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. The members exchanged views on Monday with officials of the industry ministry and the plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO. Specialists from 11 countries, including China, South Korea and the United States, will also join the inspections. The government and TEPCO hope to start releasing treated water around next spring. That'll happen after diluting tritium to levels below limits set under national regulations. But concerns about its safety have been voiced at home and
3: abroad. The IAEA review is carried out in an objective, credible, and science-based manner and helps send a message of transparency and confidence to the people of Japan and beyond.
4: The experts will visit the Fukushima plant on Wednesday. This is the IAEA's second such mission after the first in February. The agency plans to report its inspections early next year. The head of NATO says a missile that killed two people in Poland on Tuesday was likely fired by Ukraine. He noted there's no indication it was a deliberate attack and it was not Ukraine's fault. Officials in this village near the Ukraine border have been collecting evidence. Poland confirmed the damage was caused by a Russian-made missile. Its president said it appears to be a one-off incident. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg spoke Wednesday following a meeting with the organization's members. He says the investigation is ongoing and the strike was likely caused by Ukraine trying to defend itself against an attack.
3: Let me be clear. This is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine.
4: Russia denies it was behind the blast in Poland.
0: We want to stress that the high-precision strikes were aimed only at targets on Ukrainian territory at least 35 kilometers from the Ukrainian-Poland border.
4: The spokesperson also said claims the attack on Poland was a Russian missile were a deliberate provocation.
0: Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9.00 p.m. at 9865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They are also podcast at most sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California 95490. Please, help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet. We will conclude with France 24. Coca-Cola retained its title as the worst plastic polluter of the year while being an official sponsor of COP27. Then press reviews on the world human population reaching an estimated 8 billion and the meeting of Presidents Biden and Xi at the G20 summit in Bali, France
4: 24. We're going to take a look at business news now, starting with a title that no brand will want to earn, that of worst plastic polluter of the year. And the winner for five years in a row is Coca-Cola. Charles Pellegrin, our business editor, is here with more.
3: Yeah, that's right, Aaron. And this is according to an annual brand audit run by the NGO called Break Free from Plastics. Their data is based on the plastics collected among trash by citizens around the world and shows a disconnect between Coca-Cola's public commitments against plastic pollution and the actual impact of their business. Something that's even more pronounced by the fact that the company is an official sponsor of the COP27 currently taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And activists are trying to keep the pressure on Coca-Cola. Case in point, this protest in Argentina in front of one of a group's factories asking the soft drink giant to rethink its packaging and waste strategy. Take a
1: listen.
5: What we want is for Coca-Cola and others to change their sales model
1: to stop using disposable packaging and have strategies based on returnable and reusable packaging. Very little is being done, almost nothing, to try to produce less waste,
5: which we believe should be a priority. There's a really interesting article in uh, National Geographic today that looks at this, uh, looks at not just the fact that we're hitting 8 billion people, but also asks the question, what's next? Um, The magazine going with this very symbolic picture of Diwali's uh, festivities in India recently. Uh, India, of course, is set to overtake China in terms of uh, the most populous country in the world. Uh, To get an idea of how quickly the world population is growing, Nat, Nat Geo explains that it took 300,000 years for the first billion humans to be recorded uh, on Earth. That was in 1807. For the seventh to the eighth billionth person, it took just 12 years. Where do we go from now? That's what Netgeo asks. The answer will depend, of course, on how we tackle climate change and what lasting solutions we can come up with, which for the moment, the article says, we're not doing at all. Uh, So uh, certainly a lot of challenges lay ahead
1: where the global population milestone is also uh, dominating the front pages today, isn't it, Dipti?
5: That's right, especially here in France. This is uh, Aujourd'hui en France, uh, or Le Parisien, as it's known. uh, The paper's uh, focusing on 8 billion people on its front page, and it says here it's a challenge... For the planet, it's a challenge for humanity as well. Uh, the paper—the question is how to sustain such growth with depleting national natural resources. Uh, the paper noting that for every second, two human beings are born. So, you really get an idea of the, the population boom that we're facing right now. The French paper—the uh, other French paper, La Croix, uh, also focusing on this on its front page, it says uh, we, are, we are now at 8 billion people, and uh, the big Uh, question will be how we deal with this, uh, That uh, and the paper really issuing an ultimatum saying humans will have to change their their ways if they want to save the planet and limit global warming. Finally, you have The Guardian, the British Daily, which uh, has published an editorial on its front page. On the top, on its masthead, it's got a it explains that this editorial was published in partnership with 30 other world media. It calls for lasting solutions, notably advocating for a windfall tax on the biggest fossil fuel companies and uh, calls for those uh, funds to be redistributed to the poor, vulnerable countries. It also calls, quote, calls for, quote, radical thinking, uh, the kind of radical thinking we saw during the pandemic, for instance, when central banks moved swiftly to prop up government spending.
1: Yeah, and of course, Dipti, uh, combating climate change was the the key focus, if you like, of the COP27 conference, also the G20. The other focus of the G20 is the relationship, isn't it, between uh, the US and China?
5: Yes, notably because Joe Biden met with Xi Jinping on the the sidelines of that G20 summit in Bali in Indonesia. And uh, the handshake between the two leaders, their first face-to-face meeting since Joe Biden came to power is... uh, Dominating the front pages, this is the Global Times, which is the Chinese Communist Party's uh, official newspaper. Uh, The paper says that uh, the two leaders discussed a whole range of issues, notably the thorny issue of Taiwanese independence. The Global Times reiterating Xi Jinping's comments that China's position today is that Taiwanese independence and peace and stability in the region are as irreconcilable as water and fire. Uh, That meeting also making the front pages of the Financial Times here, which says that Taiwan tensions, also focusing on Taiwan tensions that overshadowed their push to improve relations. It's also uh, on the front page of the Times of London, the British uh, Daily here, the two men's handshake on uh, making uh, the front page here. Uh, She and Biden give peace a chance, the British Daily says, while you have La Stampa, the Italian paper, uh, also going with that handshake picture.
0: That report and press reviews were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website france24.com as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link. And get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.